You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston and this is The Bike Show coming this week from the capital of Germany, from Berlin, a world-renowned cycling city. And uh, we're going to spend the day riding around the streets and my guide for the day is um, none other than Maisie Hitchcock who is the editor of Berlin Eye and Maisie's World, the blog, the last time Maisie was on the show was talking about Kraftwerk, so um, a little bit of a German connection there. But Maisie, describe where we are. We're in the Mauergarten. Uh, we're actually in, in the Mauer Park, uh, which is located very close to where the Berlin Wall used to stand. We're in northern Berlin, uh, and we're in a very achingly hip district, which is called uh, Prenzlauerberg. This is where the sort of weekly flea market happens, and we've just had a poke around, and it's an enormous flea market, but really full of astounding quantities of junk. Yes, um, basically what happens is um, it's very easy to get a stall, you pay a couple of euro and you bring along the contents of your attic or your dead granny's attic and just empty it over a table and see if you can flog it. Um, and usually most people are quite successful. I think. And what did you see today the, um, of particular note well, in the junk stakes? Well I have to say I found uh, some fantastic retro hip posters from East Germany, posters um, which say disco on them, they're actually produced near the Polish border, apparently, uh, printed on essentially what's wrapping pa- what is wrapping paper, but um, they're very, very uh, striking and have phenomenal yeah, retro-hit potential. Like but there was also a lot of rubbish. Yeah, there was a lot of rubbish. Um, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of sweat-stained tops and um, old broken teacups. And old boots, one, one, just one boot. Yes, and lots of Barclay James Harvest records without the records in the sleeves. <laughs> just what I always wanted. So um, it was started off with a beautiful sunny day this morning, but now it seems to be clouding over. But we're going to do our best to take a look at Berlin. And Berlin really is a cycle city, isn't it? You, you, you get around on a bicycle. Yes. Before coming to Berlin, I wasn't a big fan of cycling. Uh, living in London puts you off cycling a bit, uh, just because it's a bit scary on the road sometimes. And I'm no professional. But since living here, I have, I've been converted to the ways of, of the wheel and um, it's a lot of cycling paths everywhere. Uh, basically, there's a lot of um, space provided for cyclists on the roads and the roads are extremely wide. Uh, motorists are fairly respectful of cyclists here compared to London, I think. And it's just basically very flat, which helps a lot. Well, we're going to polish off our bratwurst, kartoffel salad um, and glühwein and head out on the road. Los geht's! <laughs> now, there are a few things that you immediately notice when you get on a bike in Berlin. And the first thing you notice is how quiet it is. Extremely quiet city. Uh, I think the last time they had a traffic jam here was in 1945. But uh, seriously, it's really a very peaceful, tranquil city. Um, Lots of space and uh, not a huge amount going on on the street. Not a lot of noise and commotion on the street. And the second thing you notice about cycling around Berlin is that it's very flat, which makes for excellent and very pleasant and leisurely cycling. We just came down the hill from Prenzlauerberg uh, towards the centre of town. Where are we now, Maisie? Uh, Well, we're now in the uh, central district of Mitter, 
and uh, more exactly, we're actually at Rosa Luxemburg Platz. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg was a communist who was killed in about 1919 and has a lot of significance for the left wing here. Uh, there's a very strong communist movement and always has been. And despite the fact that she was kind of idolised uh, during the existence of East Germany, at the end of the Cold War, they had to change a lot of street names. Uh, this city's probably had more changing street names than any city in the world, I think. Anything in Russia doesn't compare to Berlin. Uh, it's quite confusing. And all I can say, if you come here, um, don't use a map kind of dating from pre-1989 because you'll get very confused. Because when you're looking for Eberswalderstrasse, uh, on the map you'll find Dimitrovstrasse. Uh, if you're looking for uh, Landsberger Alley, you'll find Lenin Alley. Well, good work for map makers. So where are we heading now? Um, we're actually going to head now for the Palace of the Republic, which is the old parliament, parliamentary building of the East, East Germany uh, and uh, Stroke Fun Palace. Half of it was basically a hall for plenary sessions and the other half was uh, consisted of bowling alley, about 20 restaurants, um, ice, ice cream bars. So a combination between a, a, a leisure mall and a parliament. Brilliant. Exactly. Um, so you could go and listen to the uh, Comintern's uh, ninth international whatever meeting and, and then afterwards you'd go for a little game of... Uh, Skittles. So if you're a high-ranking communist official, you might go in for the morning and do your, uh, make your speech and then go out for a bit of ten-pin bowling? Exactly, yes. If you're privileged enough to be able to get into the palace, yeah. yeah. Entschuldigen Sie, ist das der Sonderzug nach Pankow? Ich muss mal eben dahin, mal eben nach Ostberlin. Ich muss da was klären. Mit eurem Oberindianer, ich bin ein Jodeltalent und will das Spiel mit einer Band. Ich hab ein Fläschchen Cognac mit und das schmeckt sehr lecker, das schlürt sich dann ganz locker mit dem Erich Honecker. Und ich sag, ey Honey, ich sing für wenig Money im Republikpalast, wenn ihr mich lasst. All die ganzen Schlageraffen dürfen da singen, dürfen ihren ganzen Schrott zum Vortrag bringen. Nur der kleine Udo so we're just being passed by what looks like a film shoot and there's a Mercedes taxi being towed along by a Range Rover and a whole film crew and I guess some kind of acting going on. I never knew that's how they film um, car driving scenes in the movies. Well, there we go. It's quite entertaining. Yeah, there's a big um, a film scene here because it's very, very cheap for people to film here. So I mean, this is one of this day. is one of the things about why Berlin is kind of been the hippest city in Europe, maybe apart from London, for the last uh, 10 years, is because you can come here and live fairly cheaply. Apartment rents are quite low, aren't they, given that it is a big capital city? Yeah, um, rents are very low. They stayed low. Um, and basically, it's a very, very large student population here. There's three universities here, uh, partly because of the existence of the Berlin Wall. And they didn't just close one down because the wall came down. They had to keep it going. Couldn't just get rid of all the students. So there's a lot of students here. Uh, unfortunately, there's not much work. 
uh, but that also keeps costs low. It's struggling. It's funny because the German economy is doing pretty well, but the Berlin economy is horrendous. And what about the music scene in the last uh, 10 years or since the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall? Well, I think there's been some very interesting stuff uh, coming out here. Um, it went through, there was a phase where Berlin became very hip, I think, internationally as a kind of uh, a centre. The middle of the 1990s. Yeah, kind of the electoral clash scene is what I like to call it. And producing people like Miss Kitten, who's actually not from Berlin, but made this her base, probably because it was yeah, very cheap for her to live here and produce music. Basically, you know, these low rents are great for producing creativity uh, because people don't have to work full time in jobs just to pay the rent and they can do what they want to a certain extent. It means that an awful lot of rubbish is produced, but there's also some great stuff like the Electroclash movement, uh, which unfortunately got very hyped and kind of died as quickly as it got successful. We're now going along outside the foreign ministry, which it looks like a very new building. Yes, it's um, brand new. They demolished the uh, East German one uh, in the 90s and replaced it with a beautiful glass and steel number, which is what they're kind of doing all over Berlin. And then behind it, you've got the old Third Reich era architecture, a bit of neoclassical sa uh, sandstone. Now, how much of the city was destroyed during the Second World War? About two-thirds of the inner city districts were destroyed. Uh, I don't know about the outskirts, but essentially two-thirds of the centre of Berlin was made completely uninhabitable. And that was by Allied bombing, was it? Yeah, there was British and American bombing, uh, but there was also street fighting by the Soviets. Uh, and the Germans were actually firing <laughs> Panzerfausts at oncoming Soviet troops, which uh, obviously contributed towards the destruction of their own cities. And here we've got a canal. Is this a canal or a river? It's a river. Um, basically, we're in the old centre of Berlin, which really rather tragically, you can see there's a few old buildings that look a little bit like kind of Dutch uh, buildings. A lot of it was, but most of this was completely flattened during the war. And so it's rather sad because now it's rather lifeless and full of high rises, as you can see, instead of pretty little kind of medieval terraced houses, you've just got enormous kind of spaces and then concrete blocks. It's not really an old town of Berlin like there is of many European capitals? Um, no, and what there is, it's been reconstructed, uh, was reconstructed by the East Germans in the 80s, so it has a very odd feel to it. Um, there's the odd building, uh, which is made all the more kind of striking because it's uh, essentially a kind of anomaly here. Stands out. Yeah. So this is all East German tower blocks. These are actually constructed, as you can see, they're really, really massive. There's I mean, these are enormous steel and glass, 20 stories high. This street has been transformed from a little kind of medieval lane into a kind of four, was it six lane dual carriageway, uh, which basically leads into the centre of the city, heads west. And there's all these massive tower blocks which were constructed apparently because Axel Springer, you can just see his building over there, who's basically a kind of media mogul, a bit like Rupert Murdoch, owned all the major newspapers in the West during the Cold War. He hated communist East Germany and he decided to build his offices big enough so that they could see it uh, on the eastern side of uh, Berlin. So it basically stretched above the Berlin Wall. And he used to put little kind of um, LCDs along the top, trying to corrupt East Germans with uh, Western propaganda, such as, buy my newspapers, they're great. And, but the East had a hand in that as well with the uh, TV tower. 
Yes, the TV Tower definitely, uh, out, well, they basically def definitely did outdid uh, Axel Springer's building with the TV Tower. Because the TV Tower is this iconic point of reference um, in the centre of Berlin that you can see it from almost everywhere. Uh, and it's a great spire with a sphere at the top. What was the story with that? When was that built? Um, I think that was built in the mid-70s. Um, the East Germans wanted to basically build something to express their, uh, the kind of what socialism could do. Uh, but because they couldn't do it with capital, with shops like they did in the West, they had to do it with architecture. So they built lots of showcase, areas of showcase uh, communist architecture. And the TV Tower, they made to basically build as the tallest uh, tower in, in, in Europe. And it still stands today. Uh, it's lost most of its associations with the East, but I noticed lots of East Germans who I uh, have befriended tell me that the sad thing about the TV Tower was the fact that you could see the West from it, but you couldn't actually get into the West. You had a very good view of the West from the TV Tower, which I think was rather cruel of the East Germans uh, to allow their people to go up into a tower and have a look at somewhere they could never go to. Because the wall casts such a shadow over the city, obviously, but it's really been completely eradicated now, hasn't it? Not completely. I mean, it was, there was a big post-wall, post-Cold War, there was a big clean-up operation where they were trying to demolish what was left of the wall. They couldn't get, in, you know, couldn't get rid of it quickly enough. And then in about, I think, about 90, in, uh, sorry, 2000, they suddenly realised that you actually couldn't see much of the wall anymore. I mean, maybe it was part of the Ostalgie wave, which kind of, but that kind of uh, surfaced in the mid-90s. So. What's that? Uh, it's basically a kind of rose-tinted nostalgia for East Germany or East German products. Forgetting the bad side of life in East Germany, you know, not being able to have any free elections, freedom of movement, uh, any fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, and thinking about the good things like, um, I don't know, East German Coca-Cola, Sinalco, um, you know, East German food, uh, things like uh, Rotkäppchen, which is the East German brand of sparkling wine, which uh, managed to uh, do very well after the, in the Ostalgie Vela. Well, we've just crossed over the wall, but we're not quite in what used to be West Berlin. Where are we? Um, no, we're actually in what's formerly known as the Death Strip. Um, basically, the East Germans... That's uh, not an electroclash haircut. It's certainly not. It's in fact, yeah, it was a, an area which was created between the two walls. There wasn't just one wall, there was two. Uh, there was a hinterland wall, a wall and the Berlin Wall itself. And basically they created the Death Strip in order to have a, a nice an area where... where this East is the, German, the East German military. Yeah, the NVA, the NVA, uh, the National Volksarmee, who uh, basically installed all along uh, the Berlin Wall to basically stop people from trying to defect to the west, to run across the border. Um, they created this whole area so that the soldiers in, that, in the death strip could have a clear line of sight uh, to shoot people who wanted to escape. And now it's filled with rather new buildings. Yeah, Potsdamer Platz was basically a wasteland, completely a wasteland, until about um, 1995, which is when they really started constructing, reconstructing it. It was originally apparently one of the busiest uh, uh, intersections in Europe, and they've tried to kind of recreate that, but it's essentially full of buildings which have been privately funded by people like... Um, Mercedes-Benz and PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, it's kind of Chicago-ish sort of feel to it. It's well, we're standing here before some of the absolutely iconic slabs of the Berlin Wall. Um, they're about 20 foot tall, uh, covered in graffiti, which I guess means that these ones would have been facing into the west. It's easy to think of the wall as something running north to south, dividing west from east, but actually it was a circular wall that encircled the entire uh, city of West Berlin and it says here that a section of it 
um, of only 45 kilometers was separating the west part of the city from the east part of the city, but there was a further 115 kilometers of the wall which cut off West Berlin from the neighboring uh, region of Brandenburg. And all in all, that's 160 kilometers of wall. And it says here on one of these display boards that there's a plan to gradually make the entire 160 kilometers accessible to pedestrians and cyclists. Uh, so that's an interesting plan going on. That's going to be quite, would be quite a nice bike ride to do. 160 kilometers, you could take three days or you could just do bits of it now and again uh, and join it up over a period of a year or something like that. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know how, I'm not sure they could do it. Um, just because quite a lot of where the wall was actually goes through people's former backyards, back gardens, um, you know, private property, a lot of private property. So it would be tricky for them to do it, but it's a nice idea, I think. Well, we've just turned off down a very nondescript, anonymous back street around the back of Potsdamer Platz. And why have we come here? Um, because we're now standing in front of the legendary Hansa Studios. Uh, where many a famous act have recorded. The recording studio. Yeah. Uh, it used to be known as Hansa by the Wall uh, because of its location. Because it's just where the wall was yeah. um, and now where Potsdamer Platz is. So who's recorded here then? Um, well, everyone from sort of U2 to David Bowie, I think Depeche Mode have recorded here. The Killing Joke, a more obscure band, have recorded here. Yeah, I mean, most famously David Bowie. I mean, David Bowie made his home in Berlin. Why was that? I think he wanted to get away from Los Angeles because he went through a very strange phase uh, in about 1976. He got coke addicted, uh, got very paranoid, get in, got into witchcraft. I think at one point he thought he woke up and thought that he was surrounded by witches who wanted to get his semen to impregnate themselves with to give so they could give birth to the, the devil or something. And I think he realised he needed to get away from Los Angeles uh, and he decided to move to Berlin uh, which isn't exactly known as a haven of kind of clean living, uh, but basically to clean up. I think he just wanted to kind of blend in and, and be less noticeable. And how did he get on here? How long did he stay? He stayed here about two years. Uh, he got himself a nice bike. He used to cycle around the city. He let his hair grow back to its natural colour, dressed in kind of, you know, ordinary men's clothes, albeit probably like Pierre Cardin's taker on the kind of working class East German look. And he didn't get much hassle. He loved living here. He loved above a kind of spare parts shop, mechanic uh, spare parts shops. I think he just liked being here a lot. And what albums did he record? Um, as far as I know, he recorded Heroes here at this studio. Uh, and I think he composed low while he lived in Berlin. He said something like, uh, the thing about Berlin is, is it, it, it's essentially there's, there's nothing to distract you. Uh, and you start writing about the important things and you leave everything else out, which makes everything very simple. Why do you think that is? Maybe, I think, maybe he was, you know, he was recording next to the Berlin Wall, so he's looking back out into it, because this studio apparently was about 30 feet away from the wall. Uh, they could actually look directly into a guard tower from the control room here, and apparently it was very, very bleak, and you just had, all you had was this death strip in front of the wall, which was just a, an area of um, raked gravel. Heroes itself, um, the lyrics describe a couple meeting um, and a stealing kind of secret kiss. Bowie originally said it was about a couple that he saw regularly meeting by the studio within, I, I, within view of the studio and having a bit of a, a sneaky kiss. And he imagined all these things associated, he kind of imagined their story.
short distance down to Bergmannstrasse, which is in the Kreuzberg neighbourhood, is that right? Yes. And what's right. the character of this part of Berlin? It seems like it's, the architecture at least, is a kind of bit more Mitteleuropa feel of things. Yeah, I think quite a lot of it survived the war. Um, it's particularly beautiful. A lot of the roads are cobbled and the pavements. Um, properties at a premium around here. Everyone wants to live on Bergmannstrasse. There's a lot of cafes, and I've yeah. seen two fairly trendy-looking bike shops. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of bike shops around here. There's a bit of money basically around here. Uh, uh, it's a bit like Prenzlauerberg. It's quite a bourgeois area, I'd say. Although there's a very large Turkish population, and they probably wouldn't count themselves as being part of the German middle classes. And they've been here presumably before the yuppification. Absolutely, yeah. Um, they all came in the 60s as uh, Gastarbeiter of the German government, the West German government. And many stayed, have stayed and got citizenship? Um, no, well lots of them stayed but they haven't got citizenship. Um, a new law came, uh, was introduced a few years ago that meant that if you were uh, a Turkish born, uh, if you're a Turk, if you're born to Turkish parents, you have the choice to become a German citizen when you're 18 but you have to give up your Tur Turkish citizenship. But if you're born here to Turkish parents you can also stay a Turk. Uh, but you can't have both, and that's a very contentious issue at the moment in, in Germany. Turks don't feel very integrated here, on the whole. So does that mean that they've established their own kind of subcultures and places to go and places to hang out and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's very much a separate culture. Uh, there's a kind of burgeoning Turkish hip-hop scene. Um, uh, some good, good, good uh, rappers, uh, like a guy called Kul Savas, who's been around for a few years. He's one of the most successful rappers in Germany. He's actually based in Berlin. Uh, and he's he's yeah a good example of a, of a Turkish person done good here, but they have to say are a bit of an he's a bit of an exception. Uh, it's quite hard life here for Turks. Wenn ich rappe, will ich nur der Frechste sein wie Jada Kiss und jeden killen, der mein Geld verfrisst, um mich danach zu dissen, da ich jeden Tag Texte schreibe und Worte fall die Äxte, trifft mein Rhyme direkt im Herzen, wenn du glaubst, du bist der Beste, ich komm kurz vorbei, die Gäste doch ohne was zu essen, sondern Lyrics, die in Muskeln stechen wie ein Haufen Westen, bin ne Rapper, nicht wie Fesseln, ich hab kein Interesse an Wildwestern, Kacke und MC sind Franz im Westen, euer Flows entsetzen und verbreitet Türkenkretze, kommt zum Battle und ich brech dich in der Mitte durch wie Plätzchen, du meinst du bist Dorfer, doch betonst nur wie ein Opa, ein Stück Scheiße mit zu großen Selbstbewusstsein wie auf Coca geht zurück zu deinen guter Zeiten Rack. Kennst du Reite statt brutal zu fronten und für dich zu schnelle Flow zu weiten. Rhyme, du Punk, ich steige erst in einen Block aus Eis und komm nach einem Monat wieder, um direkt auf dich zu scheißen. Du meinst, ich bin nicht mehr down und dope, aber deine Eltern haben ein Haus und Boot. Du brauchst weder Fan noch wie ein Auto zu holen, sondern mein die zum Instrumental passen und froh. Well, the sun has set for today on Berlin and it's time for us to turn on the dynamos on our bicycles and part ways. Thank you very much, Maisie, for an excellent tour. Before we say goodbye, I said at the beginning of the show that you were editor of Berlin Eye. Well, what is exactly Berlin Eye? 
Um, it's a blog which is about Berlin. Um, if you're looking for things to do in Berlin, I've got a few suggestions for you. It's my own personal experiences of living here. If you're looking for kind of different places to go to in Berlin, if you don't feel like looking in a guidebook, but you want a few tips. So what's the address? It's www.berlineye.blogspot.com And we'll put a link to that on the Bike Show's website. Well, thanks again and uh, gute Reise. Dankeschön, gleichfalls. Well, the sound you can hear, the kind of whirring sound on my bicycle, it's the sound of the dynamo, it being night time now. And the dynamo is ubiquitous on Berlin bicycles. It's really a feature that everybody seems to have a dynamo. Very few people bothering with electric lights. I don't know whether that's because the Germans are more environmentally conscious or maybe don't like spending money on replacing their batteries but it seems to be very practical the light cast by a dynamo is much superior to the light cast by LED lights and actually German bicycles well at least the bicycles that I've seen in Berlin are very much of a type they're very much the sit up and beg kind of continental utility bicycle very comfortable to ride great big fat saddles thick tires three speed hub gears pedal back brakes nothing that you want to do anything too athletic on but a very gentle and comfortable and an elegant ride actually and it's the elegance of cycling in berlin that's really struck me more than anything, uh, the way in which the cycle lanes come up onto the pavements now and again and people walking seem to be quite happy to share the space with those on their bicycles. Lots of courtesy, lots of politeness, nobody seems to get too antagonised by other road users, nobody's in too much of a hurry real contrast with the kind of aggressive style of riding that there is in London and even cities like New York where everybody's in a hurry to get somewhere. Berliners don't appear to spend an awful lot of their money on their bicycles either. They're pretty old, I haven't seen many bicycles that look like they're made more recently than the 1980s but they're functional utility vehicles really and uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that bikes don't seem to be locked up especially securely I don't think there's too much of a theft problem although the number of bikes for sale at the flea market at pretty low prices suggest that maybe some of those have made their way onto their owner's stalls not exactly by legal means 
although I have no proof of that. I guess it's just a bit like the bikes you see down for sale on Brick Lane sometimes. But overall, cycling in Berlin is an absolute pleasure. It's flat, big roads, plenty of cycle lanes, comfortable bikes, and uh, nice people, really. <laughs>